Hey, this is Bob Lee, and you're listening to Over the Ball with Kevin Flynn, the world's game from an American perspective. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Over the Ball with Kevin Flynn, joined alongside, as I am every week, by media executive Grail Hallett and OTB producer and Serie A specialist, specialista, Sam Griswold. Today on Over the Ball, we catch up with UCLA law professor and international sports expert, Stephen Bank. Uh, he's going to help us make some sense of the legal issues uh, surrounding this game that we love, the beautiful game. Uh, and there's a lot of legal issues that are happening. We've got the new U.S. Women's National Team documentary by CNN for HBO Max, which I don't know, man, the reviews <laughs> aren't so hot. I'm telling you, I watched the I watched that. the ad for it. It was just annoying just to even watch the ad into, you know, these sort of misstated facts, half truths, exaggerations. Um, so I don't know, guys, we, we got to it's all of our homework assignment for next week to watch this to watch this documentary, because if it's anything like the promo, man, I, uh, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm worried. Uh, so anyway, uh, every person I talk to about this case even civilians, people who are not involved in soccer, they, they completely do not know the facts. So, um, so anyway, it will be interesting to talk about that. I, I guess we're going to just ask Professor Bank about just some of the legal issues and, and what it looks like for them in the, um, in the courtroom. So, guys, uh, I love having Professor Bank on. He is so knowledgeable, loves this game. Uh, his son's a player. He was a player. His brother was a player. The whole family are players. And uh, at UCLA, I guess people just line up for his class, uh, which talks about the beautiful game and international law. So, uh, so Grail, maybe there's hope for you. you can go back to law school and, uh, and learn that. So, yeah. guys, before we get going, what are we over today on Over the Ball? Sam? Yeah, I have to say I'm really over this pan-European Euro that we have going on. I have to admit, I thought it was a really cool idea in the beginning. But uh, just the amount of travel that has gone into it, the fact that some teams, Italy included, who I'm for, you know, have had home field advantage every game. Well, I think Wales had to go, you know, from Rome to Azerbaijan and back. It's just crazy stuff. Um, and I also don't like how some, well, I guess just one, the stadium in Budapest is basically at full capacity. And then you have, you know, not so many miles away in Munich, you know, about 10,000 people. I just think the conditions should be as similar as possible for everyone. Well, and, you, know, that's, uh, you know, Sam, that's like what we talked about with, with Professor Bank about these international ramifications to this game. So mm -hmm. you have your domestic teams, your domestic leagues and, your, you, you know, your national team. And yet all these different borders that are crossed uh, with all these different tournaments and different rules for each country. It's it's just a whole, you know, uh quagmire that that uh that, that people step into so so you're over it you're over yeah. the travel and it doesn't well, seem fair I, like italy gets to play at home all the time i've loved the tournament really i've loved watching it i just don't think it's really fair yeah yeah home field advantage um so and crowd size grail what are you over well so i'm all i'm over ever expecting uefa to show a, a, an ounce of leadership there was this situation wow. with the germany hungary game where germany uh, wanted to kind of bathe the outside of the Allianz Arena in the rainbow colors for Pride Month. And uh, UEFA was very concerned. Uh, they said they didn't want to politicize the issue. And the last time I looked, I didn't think that gay rights were a political issue. It's like a, just a human being issue. But in any case, they denied the request. In actuality, what it was all about is Hungary just instituted some very, very draconian anti-LGBTI um, 
I uh, what's the I no, LGBTQI that's oh, the Q, that's the uh, the other one? letter that's been added to the end of well, it yeah. I swear there's more letters in the alpha than, than out now it's like I just keep so anyway they they've instituted these the, these measures that are very restrictive they the Hungarian president is very uh you know homophobic and UEFA clearly didn't want to ruffle his feathers so essentially what they did is turn down what I thought was a wonderful gesture um, by the German national team and said, no, we're not going to do it. So well, I mean, you're surprised. Where, where is UEFA? I mean, you're, you're surprised, but Grail, look at how they're struggling with racism for guys. I know, sake. you know, I so know. never mind something uh, as like, like gay rights. so it's just sort of doesn't surprise me at all. Doesn't surprise me. And, and then I thought it was weird. ESPN mentioned it on air. And again, I'm not waiting for any analyst to beat the drum, but I thought somebody would have just stepped up and said, Hey, you know, we're, you know, football, this is why football is important to get these things out there and to talk about embracing everybody. And nobody wanted to touch this thing with a 10 football. All right. Uh, neither do I. So yeah. <laughs> let's move on to, let's move on to Euro 2020 guys. What are your thoughts on the tournament so far? You're a Zuri, uh, Sam, you gotta be happy. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're playing fantastic and obviously won all three of their group games. Uh, the cops um, are coming for you, Sam. The cops are coming for you. Yeah. As soon as I start talking about Italy, uh so yeah I, I don't know i don't think they've really been tested yet i think that's something this new look euro gives you with the 24 teams is that you can basically not face a really tough opponent until the the quarterfinals so i still have some questions but um I, i'm i'm really curious to know what i guess neutral supporters or non-italian supporters think of this team because it seems like a lot of people are considering italy to be the kind of toast of the tournament and the funnest team to watch. I know Rory Smith said they're the most compelling fun team to watch in the New York times. And I just wonder from your guys' perspective is can Italy ever be kind of a neutral favorite? I mean, to me, they've just seemed so hated over the years. I think, I think they're the darling of the tournament because they're playing the way people want Italy to play. The reason they have been disliked for so long is they play that very defensive, let's get to penalty kicks and win but everybody yeah. in their heart of hearts, I want Italy to be this team. So yeah. I, I think it really taps into that. Like people think of the flair, the Italians, the flair, they're the best dressed coaching staff, everything about Italy. Like this is like the perfect scenario for Italy right now. Yeah. You know, and I think uh, Sam, I think to your point, look, they played some, some nice ball here in these euros and that's changed public opinion pretty quickly. Cause you go back all the way to Dino Zoff days, he would just hold that ball in the box for, for minutes at a time, you know, doing anything but playing. And you would think in Italy with such creative players uh, that just, they would park the bus and play for penalty kicks. Like, like Grail said, it was upsetting for years, but I'm telling you the soccer public is a very forgiving group of people. Once you play some nice ball, Ball, they're in. They're, they, yeah. they got well, well, and the other thing, Sam, that always bothered me about Italy was the flopping. And the great mm -hmm. thing is that their play has taken, first of all, they're not doing as much of it. And second of all, it's about what, how they're playing, which is great. Yeah. Nobody's I mean, flopping as much as they used to. Sorry, Sam. Yeah, no, I just, it seems like they've caught the imagination in a, in a pretty cool way. I just think the history of all these tournaments, there's a team that usually does that, playing a really fun, entertaining style in mm -hmm. the beginning. And then they sort of bow out in the quarterfinals or the semifinals against a really practical, sort of well organized team. So that's my worry going I on. I think they're going to handle Austria. Pretty well, I think easily. Austria won't yeah. be a problem, yeah. but I think Belgium yeah. in the quarterfinals might be tough. All right. Welcome to Azuri today, everyone. <laughs> Lynn. 
All right, so uh, Ronaldo continues to produce, produce some big moments. Uh, he does. He's. Uh, I think he said, yeah, three of the five. I think are penalties. If I'm. Yeah, uh, if which I'm is correct. a bummer. But yeah, well, but I mean, I, I, but I do have to give him props. He doesn't miss penalties, and there are plenty of guys that do. So I will give him his due for the fact that he's pretty clinical on penalties. And um, oh, he just missed. A, he must just miss scoring on a head on a header that. Oh yeah, I saw that. Way up again. Oh, he was, he sore. He, he was hanging right. He was hanging, and he just caught it on the way down. Right. Great hang time and just great timing. It's amazing. No, I mean it's great seeing Ronaldo, Lukaku, Benzema. De Bruyne, De Bruyne, Benzema. You know, you want to see like Alexi said uh, on on the broadcast a couple of weeks ago. I mean, you want to see the stars step up and and be really good, and they they have. I got to say, De Bruyne, that's a different Belgium team when he's on the pitch. I mean, he came on, there's a, immediately, there's assist a difference. Goal. Assist, assist goal. goal. It's amazing. I mean, boom, boom, just like that. I mean, I mean, he does it for Man City. Man City's not the team that they are without him. So uh, he's, he's just, that good. He is that good that he can step on and change the game. So looking, really, at the, looking at the DraftKings odds, I th- this is interesting to me to discuss, but Belgium have fallen very far. They were actually the third yeah. favorite going into this tournament, yeah. and now they've fallen to seventh favorite at 10 to 1, despite winning all three of their group games, which doesn't make a ton of sense to me. That's um, harsh. Yeah, but I wonder if how you guys feel about France still being listed as the favorite at 4.2 to 1, despite not you know sailing through the group I still stage, like exactly. them at that because we haven't seen the best of France now are we going to see the best of France is the question mark but they have so much depth and they can beat you so many different ways that I still right. feel like they've got the, the, they've got the pole position. They seem to do what it takes a little bit. I think it almost reminds me of a, well, not like Italy parking the bus, but how Italy used to always struggle in the early rounds and then just start to play differently as they moved forward. And I think I think France has got so many uh, things in their arsenal that that they, they haven't used half of them yet. So I think France is still the the leader. And I'm you know I hate to say this, but like in a, the way the dark horse of Belgium. You know, uh, yeah, no, start to actually play, and and in England um, is just um, uh, you know they're they're facing Germany. We could spend a whole show on the German England <laughs> history, which is just yeah, yeah. absolute hatred. But uh, <laughs> again, I just it, to me, it's all about who Southgate picks, and I hope that he is uh, he he's aggressive in in some of his selections because I think they can play better than they've been playing. Right, based here on goes Lyon. here goes Grail with his English stuff there, and I would say, um, you know, look, England always succumbs to the pressure; they really do, and yeah. they never feel the pressure more than when they play Germany. And I think feels like German players rarely feel any outside noise. Oh, no. They play how they play. I think it's worse for England to actually play Germany at Wembley than it would be for England to play Germany at the Allianz Arena. I actually think they would feel less pressure. You know, I've got a great story about my late friend, comedian Vic Henley. He was on the Opie and Anthony show, but he went to Wembley for a German-England match. And he said, just he was having, it was the first soccer game he'd ever seen. He was appearing at the comedy store there. He says he was having a blast. He went with a bunch of English guys to the game and they were drinking and singing. And he said, what an amazing sports, uh, you know, feeling I got. He said, nothing like anything I had haven't had in the United States. And he said, then they started doing the wave. And he said, the English started doing the wave and saying, if you won the war, stand up. And the wave would go around. It would go all the way around the stadium. And then when it got to the German section, nobody would stand up. And then it would it'd wave it again. So it was very funny. Uh, well, I, I know that in the next few days, the tabloids are going to go crazy and start using words like, you know, Jerry, Hun, Kraut, 
all these oh, derogatory anti- terms. Oh yeah, they, they could care less. The tabloids just throw it all out there. Leading well, it's, a, to the game. it's amazing what you can get away with. Uh, you know, if you can, you can make fun of a white man, that's for sure. Yeah. I, you know who you know who got in trouble? Megan Rapino. Actually, she made a remark about Asian eyes. Can you see through those closed Asian eyes or something like that? The, mm-hmm. you know, and so yeah, about ten years ago, right? Yeah, but look, man, tweet. you know, live by the sword, die by the sword. So you're I calling know. everybody out in their comments, then you're going to get called out on yours as well. Yeah. Um, my I, did comments find, I did find that humorous, by the way. Uh, yeah, well, it's just sort ironic. of ironic. Like, there you go. Ironic is the better. Uh, is yes. The better so, uh, all right. So, um, so I just wanted to point out one thing on the Euro. I, I mentioned in the quiz last week, if you guys remember those five teams that had very similar rosters to the yeah. United Sam, States. Sam. Yeah. Grail and I try to blank out those when we when we are over seven with the questions. We try to move on to the next. Yeah, like a two percent uh, guess rate. So I know, far. but we do remember this. We do, <laughs> yes. we do remember this. One. Yes. So of those teams I mentioned, I just wanted to point out that three of the five—Turkey, Poland, and Scotland—all finished in last place in their groups and did not advance. Obviously, and to reiterate what you were saying last week was that they have similar rosters to the United States. Similar rosters to the United yeah. States. Uh, and- one Ukraine advanced as a third place team. Uh, yeah. And another Wales finished second in their group. So mm-hmm. that's that's sort of the shakedown of how those teams did. And, and I do want to give one plug for the tournament and mention that there were 94 goals scored in 36 matches wow. for an average of 2.61. So for all the naysayer soccer fans out saying, there's never any scoring. You should have been watching the Euros. God, that is the most, that's the most annoying voice I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> yeah, that, was, that was pretty bad. I, tr- I tried to be annoying. <laughs> I think if I have one complaint about these Euros, it's that a a true kind of underdog outsider hasn't really emerged in a cool right. way. I mean, I think Italy in some ways are capturing, like we were talking about, people's hearts, but I don't think Maybe you can really count them an underdog. Yeah, but Switzerland are so boring. I mean, in yeah. Sweden are the same. I mean, yeah. it seems like the underdog path to success is a very practical defensive one, which is... You know, makes sense, but also well, like Iceland was last time around, Sam. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they were just such a novelty, I guess. Yeah, that, that, exactly. That was fun. But yeah. hey, yeah. so Grail, what are the numbers like with with? Yeah, uh, so viewership? the ratings and and the ratings. I'll preface this by saying they're they're a little bit outdated, just because it takes a while to get the ratings. But uh, so far, based on the first, I think it was the first twenty four matches, uh, ratings were up thirty three percent on ESPN ABC versus two thousand sixteen. So that's great. Um, they're averaging um, 1.8 or the, the highest rated game, excuse me, was Germany, Portugal at 1.83 million. So the trend is definitely uh, in the right direction. I, I, I think the Italy game on uh, tomorrow versus Austria is going to be a big draw, big draw because so many Italian Americans. So, All right. anyway. and so, uh, so UEFA, some big news, they drop, uh, drop away go rules. What do you guys think of that? I love it. Yeah. yeah. I think you could- it seems like it's a math problem. Sometimes you're watching a game, you're not, not sure what you're rooting for. It, it, it's, it's, it's just, confi- I think it's, I think it's, I think it's cumbersome. It's always been that way. It's been around for what, Sam, 50 years or something, nine years, six years, I think. Yeah. yeah. And I've always liked extra time. I mean, I was 30 minutes of extra time decided on the pitch. And if, you know, worse comes to uh, worse, you end up with penalty. Kicks. I hate penalty kicks. Than- I hate penalty. Kicks. I wish every 15 minutes they take off a player till yeah. eight. 
till, till yeah, eight players I, and then just one, play you drop. One aside, it's Courtois, yeah. Courtois against. Uh, I don't know. I, I will <laughs> say that the only thing about the away goals that I've liked in recent years is that it seems like teams finally figured out that you should attack when you're playing on the road, where before everyone would just kind of hunker true. down. So you would get these crazy score lines in the first games that then meant the second game would have to be really wide open and then uh, two, if you know, you yeah. wanted to overturn it. So, I mean, it led to some weird looking box scores, but uh, I don't know. I thought that added a little something. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Good stuff. And then um, some news to report on the Houston dynamo of MLS. Who's got that one? Yeah. So uh, yeah, I've got, I've got some info on that. So You're Ted, ruffling your papers. You're getting well, ready no, for professor well, no, bank. I, I want to make sure I give the guys appropriate dude, Ted Siegel who's the 40-year-old. Uh, by the way, whenever I see 40-year-old associated with a $400 million investment, I feel so inadequate as a slightly older gentleman. As you yeah. should. So he's a guy who grew up in New Jersey, always been a soccer fanatic. And uh, yeah, he, he basically bought the Houston Dynamo and the Houston Dash, which is the NWSL team, which is part of the deal. And then the arena rights to that as well. And, uh, you know, he, he his parents immigrated here from the Soviet Union in the mid 70s. And uh, he's a guy who's obviously done very well, but he's a, he's a soccer guy from the standpoint right. that he loves soccer. He's a fan of soccer. And he's gonna. He said, "I'm gonna invest the appropriate money to make both teams competitive." So you got MLS must oh, love, I love these, hearing that. Love yeah. these American guys. Hey, so let's uh, we'll take a break and get back uh, get to Professor Bank. But Sam, I wanted to ask you a quick question. Um, the American uh, hedge fund guy Jimmy Pallotta left Roma. He sold Roma. Like, what happened there? Was there frustration with trying to build the stadium or something? I think or that just, had a lot to do with it. Um, yeah. I, he, I mean, he sold it to another American, a guy named Dan Friedkin from uh, Texas, I believe. Are you Friedkin uh, kidding me? Really? <laughs> oh, um, night, yeah, there, there was a uh, there was a long saga trying to get a new stadium built, which has been going on, you know, honestly, since I started following Sedia, you know, right. Yeah, but you, you, you dig in so. Rome, you you pull up like an ex pope. Oh, exactly. Where do you go? No, you're not exaggerating. I mean, they, they've tried to extend the metro so many times, and they run into some roman bath or something and it all gets canceled <laughs> i mean it's uh i can't imagine the bureaucracy of getting something done in rome um i think i, I do often think however that americans come in with these unrealistic expectations like right. i'm gonna get it done and you're seeing it a little bit with uh rocco camiso at fiorentina he wants to build a new stadium or refurbish the old one and you just can't do things overnight in italy the way you can do them here so right yeah. i remember uh with mount vesuvius uh was a pompeii going there yeah um, and just the complaints that were like they it took forever to just get a section dug up or whatever oh, yeah, so, yeah. so all right uh welcome to archaeology today everybody <laughs> <laughs> all right well let's take a break there and when we come back i love talking to this guy we had a great conversation with him everybody about all the the legal uh, ramifications, machinations that are going on in this beautiful game. So stick around. Uh, we have Professor Bank coming up. You're listening to Over the Ball. Over the Ball is brought to you by Soccer America. Go to SoccerAmerica.com slash join and sign up for the Soccer America Pro Membership. It's just $4.90 a month or $49 a year. And by Ticket IQ, the simplest and cheapest way to buy tickets. Go to TicketIQ.com. And when it asks for the promo code, punch in OTB10 for $10 off of your purchase. Can't lose. 
All right, joining us now on Over the Ball, he is a professor of business law at UCLA, UCLA School of Law. That was a tongue twister for me for some reason. It shouldn't have been. He's also a frequent commentator on soccer law issues, applying his business and tax uh, experience as a legal affairs contributor uh, to a number of forums, including Over the Ball. Uh, he explores these issues in depth. This is a course I want to take at UCLA International and Comparative Sports Law, as well as his perspectives seminar on law, lawyering, and the beautiful game. And that's what we're talking about. Welcome back to Over the Ball, Professor Stephen Bank. How are you, Professor? I'm good. Thanks for having me, Kevin. Always good Professor, and I, I'm along with side with, uh, we'll have uh, Gilligan and Marianne here. That's Sam and Grail. <laughs> that's uh, you got so and first of all i always try to add an s to the end of your name i don't know if that's been a, a lifelong uh, thing for you but i just I, I say banks i don't know why so i apologize if i ever say it um during this interview so uh hey so first of all you're in dallas actually uh, in frisco um to watch your son play talk a little bit about that i didn't even know this uh, your son was a player yeah so uh yeah he's um he's with the mls next cup playoffs that they're hosting here which is All the right. really replacement for the development academy us when u.s soccer bailed but right right at the beginning of the pandemic uh, mls uh, uh, entered the breach partly for because their clubs their academies were in it and partly because there's a lot of talent that um, they wanted to uh, continue to, to to foster nurture and so um just kind of worked out they were able to have a spring season ultimately they had some jurisdictions that could have a fall season but mostly spring and so it's kind of it's an impressive scene here first of all there's there's just thousands of players here um which is always interesting uh but uh you know just to give my son's experience he's in one of the feature his team's in one of the featured games this uh this evening uh um uh, it's i guess six six o'clock central time live stream it's one of their live stream games on their feature fields and they have really done it up with kind of MLS, um, you know, sort of MLS media, really. Um, and they told, you know, they told the, the families that they're, they're, they have something like six national teams here. You know, that's not something you would necessarily see with the U.S. Soccer Development Academy. They probably wouldn't be inviting a whole bunch of CONCACAF nations to come over and check out their you know, players who, who might yeah. be eligible for them. They've got something like 30 or 40 pro teams, and so that's more than the MLS teams. And so I'm assuming some either league MX teams or, or whatever. And, but they still have something like three, three to 400 college scouts. Uh, so, which some people assume that MLS wouldn't care about. So it's an interesting development for MLS. It's exciting for the kids, exciting for, you know, my kid to play in a, um, yeah. you know, in FC Dallas's great facilities. Um, but it is, uh, but, it, you know, just to, so that's all great. Uh, um, the, the negative, I suppose, is when you look around and you see, well, BCNL, which is the Elite Cubs National League, is having a boys' national event, which is where some of the BA teams went. And, and there's girls who are playing in two other leagues. And so it's really the fragmentation in youth soccer is, is a little disappointing, although um, free market, right? Uh, mm -hmm. yeah, with all yeah. the antitrust analysis I've been doing, it actually would probably be a violation of antitrust if, if someone said, no, you can't do it that way. You all have to. Uh, fit into one umbrella. So, well, I think the bottom line is it's in a way it's a it's a good thing because just more players are you know getting uh, 
you know, some great training at an earlier age. This is what, uh, you know, Christian Pulisic had talked about that age that was so important to him, which is 14, 15, 16. This is right when you need to, uh, to get that. And so your son's a player, good, good player. Apparently he takes after his mother, I would say. The interesting thing is, is they're doing MLS Matt, they have match evaluators, former players and coaches, who are doing match evaluation of every single match. You know, my son's in, you know, U15, and they're doing like those wow. match evaluation, written evaluation of every every game. Um, so, you know, so I mean, yeah, it's, it's I think I think they're taking this quite seriously. And that's what- and I was kidding about the the athletic ability because I think you you guys are, you're a soccer family. Your brother was a player as well. So, uh, so uh, yeah, I played. I still play. Yeah, so it's all good. Oh man, you still play. He's better. He's, he's doing better than we are guys. Cause we're falling apart. So, uh, all right. So, um, get us up to date. You know, you sort of have given us the skinny on the, the U S women's national team, you know, for, for me as a player, former player, just and what the U S soccer represented, it's just in so many ways kind of sad because, you know, soccer, we were together, this one body. And now it seems like uh, you got the men's team and the women's team and they've been pitted against each other, but, it seems like the facts um, are not always given out. Um, so it's always great to have you on so we can talk about uh, some of these issues. So what's the latest on that lawsuit with the U.S. women's national team? I know we have this this documentary coming out, so I, I wanted to get your thoughts on it. Yeah, so the, the women uh, are appealing the summary judgment um, motion. Originally, they that, that came a year ago, over a year ago. Uh, summary judgment decided against them. Summary judgment means that the judges decided that there are really no issues of material fact that, um, you know, if all the if all the disputed facts went for the plaintiff, the case still should come out uh, for the defendant. Uh, and so uh, the uh, the case was sort of in in holding period because the uh, because there was a separate issues relating to um, working condition claims. Uh, turf and and adequate training and, and podiums and all that kind of stuff. And so two so, lawsuits, two lawsuits or one? No, it was one lawsuit. Issues. It was just that two the issues. judge gave a partial summary judgment. So that's okay. why the case took like a whole another year to get all that worked out. They settled that the working condition claim, so it didn't go to trial. And uh, then the judge had to issue a notice allowing them to appeal the case. So now it's going up to the Ninth Circuit. Right now it is it's out the Ninth Circuit. Uh, they just have the, the notice of appeal. They essentially just filed, the players have filed, they want to appeal. It is possible that the Ninth Circuit could uh, um, reverse the summary judgment. They could decide there are issues of material fact that a, a jury you know, should be entitled to hear. Does not mean that the women would win the case. It just means that the case would then go back to the trial with the same judge who would then uh, uh, proceed over uh, a discovery and, and a potential um, trial eventually. Uh, so that's where it is. It's, it's, it's sort of in, in the middle or at the end. If the, if the Ninth Circuit were to affirm, then, you know, other, other than appealing to the Supreme Court, there's, you know, they don't have anywhere else to go. But, that's, but it could be just in the middle. So, so they kind of lost the first go round here and they've appealed. They, they definitely lost the first go. There's no question. Um, in a normal situation, the players would, have, would be evaluating their leverage and say, all right, we lost. That's not good. Uh, it shows that at least one judge has looked at the case, our allegations and the facts and decided that we are not likely to win. And um, so you're now hoping you can find other judges who will disagree, but it's not, never a good sign when at least one judge is, you know, sides one way. Um, mm-hmm. It is, 
the, the real problem here, uh, you know, as, as the U.S. soccer has come out and said, is, is that if this were just a dispute about the size of the bonuses or anything like that, this could be settled quite easily. The money's there to settle it. Uh, the issue is, uh, the, is the FIFA prize money for the World Cup. Right. And that's where things get a little um, messy as far as the facts, the allegations, and, and, and how, you know, sort of the logistics of, of how FIFA prize money works. FIFA prize money is paid um, for the men's and women's World Cup uh, separately. It mm-hmm. is very different. So it's about, you know, 4 million for the women's World Cup last time around and say 40 million for the men's World Cup, right? So that's a huge difference in prize money. But it's not as if that money goes directly to the players. It goes to the federation. Uh, there are, it's almost unheard of. I don't know that any other country where they paid out the entire amount of the prize money to the players. U.S. soccer did that for the women. So great, right? You know, U.S. soccer is saying, look, we spent, we gave them everything we had. Um, the problem is, of course, everything was $4 million. Uh, in France, for France, for example, which won the last World Cup, uh, they got about $400,000 each. Right? A flat amount, the players got 400000 That works out to somewhere in the you know, eight to nine million range, more than the four million the women got, but not 40 million. Right? Where did the rest of that money go? That finances France's operations with youth national teams, with development, with coach training, ref training, fields, uh, tournaments, all that kind of stuff. So that's the normal situation. So almost you can't look at any of the other pay equity deals around the world that national teams have signed and see a situation where they're getting all the money. It's usually like, if money comes in, you will get the same flat amount. And that flat amount actually could be less than what the women got last time. So it's a, like a little crazy. I mean, the women got everything they, they could get, which wasn't very much because they could have gotten more. Men got double, perhaps something like double. Um, in the in, in for France, but and, not, and that's that's linked to viewership, right? Or viewership, uh, yeah. or, or or all kinds of income that comes in. So for, so for the women's and for the men's separate cups. That's where I think the women, you know, were making a, a, a fairly a strong claim in the in the pay equity case in the U.S. Now they weren't talking about FIFA because they're not suing FIFA; they're suing U.S. Soccer. But right, uh, the there's two problems. There's a problem with the facts. Uh, and, and then there's a problem with um, sort of how the facts are developed. So the fact problem is, is that both U.S. soccer and FIFA generally do bundled contracts, media contracts. So they don't sell, here's the women's players, women's World Cup rights, here's the men's World Cup rights. Um, who's to say what they're paying for, right? What we can say is, is there are many more teams in the men's World Cup than the women's World Cup traditionally, you know, historically, just because they're and countries that don't sponsor a women's team. So there's a bigger market. I mean, just, just looking at the numbers of, of teams, but we don't really know whether the um, TV's, you know, execs were paying for one or the other. The, right. the, the problem with the facts, and this is what the women were arguing in the U.S. soccer case is, it's not so clear whether the uh, media, exe- you know, the TV uh, was being sold and as marketed as hard, right, for men and women. And so there's this, so that's just a classic problem. You know, right. you, you allege that you're not really trying hard enough with us. And I think in the U.S. soccer case, there, there may be a good argument for that, that they just didn't know that they were sitting on a land, on a gold mine and they were, you know, wasting it. Um, but that's a, a harder case to make in court. You have to make it based on omission rather than a commission. You just say like you didn't try hard enough or you know, yeah. aggressively enough. All right. Grail, you have a question? 
Yeah, Professor, great having you as always. Um, just kind of pulling on that thread a little bit more. Um, a couple of weeks ago, Cindy Parlow Cohn, the president of U.S. Soccer, came out with a statement that was kind of re-articulating the mathematical uh, reality of the situation. You know, if we were to do that, first of all, it's not our money, as you said, it's FIFA's money. Second of all, we would bankrupt U.S. Soccer. Um, my take on it was, you know, as a former U.S. Women's National Team player, she was almost trying to, through a press release, say, hey, friends, you know, ex-teammates, this is the reality of the situation, okay? Like it or not, this is the deal, and the 60 million or whatever you're asking for isn't going to happen. I'm just curious what your thought was about that statement and, you know, the messenger being different, how much of a difference that makes versus Carlos Cadero saying the exact same thing. Yeah, I mean, you would you would think that there's a level of trust with Cindy Parlo Cohn that didn't exist with Sunil Gulati or or right. Carlos Cadero. I mean, just just from past um, uh, association. Uh, what Cohn is saying is true. Uh, um, what she's saying that's disingenuous is we would be happy to do something where we shared the money, put it, put the money in a pool, and then we shared it between men and women. The disingenuous part of that is, of course, they they have no problem with that. The men would also agree with that too, because the men are likely to win the men's World Cup, but the women are more likely to win the women's World Cup, so they'd be sharing that two four million dollars now in half right, with the men. So that's probably not something that the men are going to uh, reject. And you know, but it's it's the the challenge is that. Um, you can, if that's what we're left with, and that's probably what we're left with, right? In negotiating, I can see them getting all, like what you do in a negotiation room is you whittle away the low hanging fruit, right? Let's get the stuff that we can do. You want the per diems to be the same? Exactly. We'll put you exactly the same hotel, exactly the same, air, you know, all that kind of stuff's easy. Um, bonuses to be the same, fine. You don't have guaranteed pay, we'll give you the exact same bonuses, right? We can make that identical. What they can't do is make up the difference if the men won the World Cup, they could even say, you know what, we're going to institute a new rule when we negotiate both new uh, unions, player agreement, you know, CBAs, that both of you get a flat amount. That would be what other countries do. They don't give it the whole amount. They give a flat amount. They could do that. But if the men aren't going to win the World Cup, they don't have the money sitting there to give. So where are they going to get that money? Um, and that's what Cohn is saying is, is that bankrupt, meaning we don't have the uh, the resources to cover the amount of, that they pay to the men. It, we, we can pay you everything we get, but we don't get that. Mm -hmm. And and fundamentally, that's um, that's the the stumbling block in any negotiation for settlement. It might be even some stumbling block in, in the legal case, but it's certainly a stumbling block in, in negotiations. So that's an international question. I mean, it plays right into your expertise as opposed to sort of local and governments or, you know, I mean, uh, our federal government and our laws. Um, let me ask you something about this, because it seems to me that uh, even with the reviews of the movie, uh, the documentary through uh, HBO Max and, and CNN, how much of it, it, the whole PR push, how much does that affect legal uh, settings like you know will a judge listen to sort of the me too movement or the sort of uh, you know like the ninth circuit is supposedly a very liberal 
um, you know, court, they have that reputation, at least a former president used to uh, piss and moan about it a little bit. But, uh, you know, how much does that play into these findings? Because it seems like they're really trying to work up the public to put pressure on the lawsuit itself, really U.S. soccer. But can you put that pressure on, on the legal system? Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, U.S. soccer communications came out with a Twitter thread responding to the movie, which is, uh, which is this, this documentary, which is unusual, um, to say the least. Uh, I think that um, most legal observers thought from the beginning that um, the women's national team was playing this really hard or was at least advised by their lawyers to play this really hard in the media because the facts weren't easy, right? Mm. If, the, if the facts <laughs> aren't easy, then the law, you know, going in the courtroom is not as good as pressuring public relations and get a good settlement and then you're done, right? What, what's that old quote, professor? The, yeah, you pound the... the yeah. If you don't have the facts, yeah, you argue. It's one of those things. Like if you if you if you have the you know if you have the law, pound the law. If you have the facts, pound the facts. If you if you have neither, then pound the table. Um, and <laughs> and uh, so um, the the their argument, you know, is that I mean, the, the, four years ago, five years ago, the women were appearing on uh, I forget whether it was Good Morning America or whatever it was, but they were pure, sixty minutes. You know, they're appearing on national shows. And that's really an appeal to the public and trying to pressure U.S. soccer to come up with favorable settlement terms. Um, uh, there is, at this point, uh, the documentary feeds into that. I don't know that they're formally associated with the documentary, but it certainly feeds into that. Um, I, I think what Cohn is saying is, is that we can be pressured, right? Yes, pressure us, but, but not that far. Right? We don't have the money. Right? We, that's mm -hmm. like beyond, like we can't pressure ourselves into bankruptcy. So we don't have that money. And it's not, I don't think they're joking about that. I don't, I don't think there's like a, a pot of 40 million bucks. And remember, this is like every four years or 50 million or whatever it's going to you know, grow to unless the men win the, win the World Cup. And then there's a right. conversation about how we distribute that money. Um, and really what should happen if we're going to pressure, the problem is, is that they're putting the pressure in a point that's not the ideal place the women should be working with the men and pressuring the men to get together and jointly negotiate the CBA. Because if the men's and women's national team player associations can jointly get together, that's the kind of pressure that, all right, now we've got all the players at the table at the same time. Now we can figure out what's a sensible solution because the men aren't going to be happy if they're, you know, if the money's coming from, if they eventually do really well, they're not all that happy about, it. but they might be willing to, come up with like, here's a number, you know, that everybody can be happy with. Um, but it's not gonna work if men aren't win winning the World Cup, there's no money sitting in, in there. I, and to some extent, there's an overplaying of, of, of their hand yeah. if there's no money. That's what it seems like a little bit. Um, Sam, you have a question? Yeah, yeah, changing tack a little bit, Professor. Um, we had this new MLS uh, league announced this week, uh, supposed to complete the pathway, I guess, from the development um, levels up to MLS and uh, doesn't seem like there's a ton that's known about it yet, but I'm just curious how you see it fitting into the soccer uh, pyramid at large and especially interesting to me anyways, how it, you know, kind of competes with NCAA soccer uh, as we just had this NCAA decision this week about paying the athletes and how, how that all shakes out. Yeah, it's, so there's a couple different uh, possible um, competitors. Obviously USL um, is the, first one because they the MLS reserve teams are already playing in USL for the most part one or two or championship level. Uh, 
but in theory, and I haven't seen it yet, but in theory, the, uh, you know, if there's this new MLS league that is supposed to be, um, if you finish our U17, U19 team, and we're not ready to sign you to a senior contract, we'll sign you to this contract. Uh, and um, they signed a massive new deal, which they are pushing here, by the way, in Frisco. Um, it's on the, the sideboards of all the, of the, of the, of the fields where they're showing the big games. Um, I deal with University of South Carolina Online, um, which uh, is a replacement for uh, Southern New Hampshire University, uh, slightly more, um, uh, I guess, slightly more known because it's University of South Carolina. Uh, and, you know, it's a way for people to avoid going to college and continue to play soccer, but still have college, you know, and, you know, being paid for and in the background. Um, right. So that's a, you know, that could be a, a threat to NCAA. On the other hand, um, I, I think there's enough players, enough late developers. Um, uh, there are positions where people tend to develop later. Goalkeeper, my son's a goalkeeper. Goalkeepers tend to develop later. So, you know, there's still a place for NCAA in this. And I think the players can keep their rights. But I, I think what, what's interesting about this new league is um, the possibility to keep under one roof all of the, you know, from U12 through to pro, uh, they can control everything about it, um, which some people who have been kind of um, not pro MLS, let's say, uh, might be suspicious about anything where MLS keeps control. But, uh, but there's probably a good thing for USL too, USL as well, because USL uh, then can go about its business of becoming the best league it can be, rather than being kind of halfway between an MLS feeder league and its own know ambitious league so there's probably a good thing for usl in the long run but it it keeps everything under one roof it doesn't mess up having like a usl players union negotiating for roster rules or things like that that will affect the mls players as well or conditions so probably a good thing i i think more uh more likely uh the question will be uh, are they taking independent teams, right? It'd be one thing if it was just an MLS reserve league, that's fine. Nobody really is thinking about that. If it's taking an independent team, then it becomes a competitor to NCAA, competitor to USL, competitor to these other leagues that have aspirations that are bigger like NISA um, or others. So that's the question we have. My guess is this is more though about MLS finding what the best you know, uh, development environment for the players are. And what they're really trying to do is sign players at a really young age because they realize that there's money to be made by um, solidarity and training compensation, solidarity payments, training compensation, selling players, all of that, that they need to make money on their development. And sometimes that means controlling them at a really young age. Wow. So that's what we'll when, when I was playing, I could have never imagined that foreign teams coming here, national teams coming here to check out players in the United States at 15 years old. So, uh, at the end of the day, I think that's some good progress. So, uh, Grail, to ask yeah. Uh, professor. Yeah, Professor, um, Sam alluded to the NCAA decision, and you actually tweeted about it. Can you just discuss a little bit the ramifications of that? And obviously, it's, it's more far-reaching than just soccer, but kind of how that fits into the whole landscape right now. Yeah, so the NCAA versus Alston decision is an antitrust case. And let me just try to recount the antitrust cases going on in U.S. soccer. There's the NASL case. I don't know if you remember. That's still going on. Mm -hmm. um, there might even be a trial on the NASL case. Uh, there's the um, there's the relevant sports case. Right? Relevant sports wants to have 
La Liga games or any foreign league games in the U.S. Mm -hmm. That's an antitrust case. Um, uh, and uh, so if we go to take the relevant cases, just an example, two days. So two days after the Alston case, which Alston was represented by Jeffrey Kessler. Um, same Jeffrey dude, Kessler same guy from the women, right? Yeah. He represents the women, also represents uh, relevant sports. Um, so he filed a, a, a motion to um, supplement uh, um, a, uh, you know, a filing in the relevant sports case to add the Alston site. So, so any case dealing with antitrust, sports antitrust right now, is relevant to soccer because it's going to be, you know, there's like multiple cases going on. And um, in the relevant sports case, the question was whether uh, FIFA and, you know, a FIFA rule that U.S. soccer abides by, is that a conspiracy and restraint of trade subject to antitrust restriction? NCAA arguably was saying something like, hey, this is NCAA rules, and but we should get some kind of a, uh, a limited rule of reason uh, review of sports exceptionalism, et cetera. Uh, so uh, U.S. soccer just filed uh, um, yesterday, I think, uh, a response saying, hey, this is nothing to do with the, the Allison case has nothing to do with us. But that's going to be the question is, is whether uh, whether this antitrust case has broader ramifications for the applicability of antitrust rules to a uh, to an association, a multi-level association and its rules. Uh, is that a conspiracy in restraint of trade or is that just a sanctioning body that people apply to and get um, and get uh, a, a, a stamp of approval from. Uh, if that's kind of what US soccer would like it to look like, that's what FIFA would like it to look like. If it is, anytime you enter into a membership association and agree to a bunch of rules, that's a conspiracy, then uh, sports governing bodies are gonna be uh, um, targets for antitrust for sure. And, and that, that may be the case, we'll have to see, but that's the impact of the, Alston case. Now, it doesn't mean they're going to win the relevant case or win the NASL case, but that is the kind of implications beyond the NCAA itself. This is this is all really interesting stuff. But if there's a test on a professor, I'm screwed. I'll tell you that right now. <laughs> <laughs> Sam, you got a question? As the train runs by your head, <clears throat> that's not my train. That's my that's but, my train. That's my. Oh, train. that's your train. Yeah, my, right. my my private train. Yeah. That's but uh, speaking, I want to ask another antitrust question about um, Olivia Moultrie uh, winning her decision and likely being able to play in the NWSL. But, but before that, I just want to ask, is it normal that a country's soccer federation is facing this many antitrust cases at the same time? I mean, like, is this also happening in England and other places? Or are we unique in this? Well, so it's a really good question, Sam. And, and um, in many respects, competition law is, which is what they call it in other countries, uh, there's a historical reason why it's antitrust in the US, uh, is, is a big area now. And most of the discussion over the Super League was about whether uh, UEFA is violating competition law by requiring uh, any league and any player participating in any league to, uh, um, to stay within its sanctioning um, in order to participate, in order to, in order to be sort of an active member of the general community. And uh, so I think that you know, the question of UEFA and the imposition of penalties, if it had been imposed on the players, I think it'd be a really strong case that they're violating competition law. It's a little weaker on sanctions for the team, especially the teams that agreed, so I don't think there's going to be an issue, but a little weaker. It might be a problem 
in the case of the um, non-English holdouts who are, who are still claiming that we should be entitled to participate, they, that may indeed be a competition law violation. I mean, keep in mind what's going on in the Super League is a, a sanctioning body runs its own tournament and is saying, if you don't participate in our tournament, uh, we're gonna exclude you from everything we do. Uh, and by the way, we're in cahoots with another association, FIFA, we're gonna exclude you from uh, participating in their tournaments too. That sounds, you know, antitrust-like, right? Sounds yeah. like a competition. Uh, you don't want your league to compete with our league. Um, so what's happening is uh, both in the U.S. and internationally, first of all, there's real money. It used to be sports didn't have a lot of money, and so that wasn't, there was a lot of antitrust. But there, there's been antitrust lawsuits in the U.S. for a long time in sports. Uh, NASL, in fact, has participated in antitrust lawsuits before in its earlier incarnation. And baseball, uh, baseball, absolutely. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, football, basketball, everything. There's been uh, antitrust lawsuits. They can be on labor side. They can be on the team side, league side. Uh, what's different in the U.S. is that in the U.S. we consider leagues to be businesses, and businesses can have you know competitors. You can form a another business and compete with one. Whereas in Europe, the idea that you would create a separate league and that that league would be entitled to operate on its own and be a business and go on an equal footing compete is foreign to them. They think about, they think about teams as being competitors, players maybe, but leagues have always been under this pyramid. One of the, the dirty secrets uh, or, uh, you know, lying in the shadows of a promotion relegation is, is that you have to have a very organized pyramid. That pyramid has to be tightly controlled. You can't have multiple leagues at the same level. You can't have the championship competing with premier league to be the best league in England you got to have a, a really organized league that requires what in the U.S., in, if you were dealing with non-sports businesses, looks like antitrust, right? If you couldn't have, you know, if you had to have like uh, hotel chains or, or car manufacturers be under each other so that they wouldn't compete with each other, like they couldn't brand, you know, extend their brand into a luxury brand, that would be a violation. So sports has been, in Europe, sports has been more considered exceptional. In, in the in the Alston case, that's actually what they're saying is, is uh, uh NCAA is not you know sports exceptionalism doesn't apply here. You know you gotta you gotta be subject. To, that's what let me put it uh, more succinctly. That's what Kavanaugh is saying in his concurrence. It's not what everybody else signed on to. What Kavanaugh is saying is, is that a violation of of antitrust law is a violation of antitrust law. No character in sports. So that's the big uh, shot across the bow for sports. That's the Supreme Court. Um, you know. Uh, yeah. appointee a Kavanaugh so um, it's funny you know it seems like with the with the international perspective even with the Super League what was happening it, it seems like there would have to be a European influence on our soccer formations here in the United States what seemed to be happening with uh, the Super League which we'll get to in a minute I want you to answer Sam's question as well but the the Super League is I mean, one fear that they had was somebody like Kroenke moving the team from one city. Imagine if Liverpool's suddenly in Blackpool or whatever. Uh, you know, they don't really believe you have that right to move a team uh, out of a city. It's it's not your team in a certain respect. So, right, um, and that's a very you know, in the U.S. where we may not like it, but you know, move from Oakland, move from mm -hmm. uh, San Diego, move. I mean, there's St. Louis, and it yeah. happens all the time in the U.S. Right. And yeah, they're following the money. So, uh, Sam? Oh, yeah. So just to go back to the Olivia Moultrie case, I wonder just what you can tell us about that. 
Yeah, so Olivia Moultrie case is a, in, in many respects, is a bizarre case. She's been denied the right to participate in NWSL in the past few years because of an age rule. Uh, what, what's bizarre about it is most people who know really nothing about NWSL may look at it and say, well, wait a minute, why in baseball or in soccer and MLS or in other leagues and, and you know, they've had, they've had age rules, right? Um, uh, mm -hmm. Haven't they? Uh, um, where are they? So MLS hasn't, but NHL has, uh, basketball has, uh, football has, uh, but it's all been collectively bargained. And the reason why that escapes uh, um, the, the antitrust claim is because there's a labor exemption. So if you collectively bargain uh, for a rule, and the rule is you, know, you have to be 18 to participate, then that's free from antitrust restraint because you've done it with labor. Uh, there's a, a pretty decent argument that that's problematic because it means that like 25 year olds are bargaining that 18 year olds can't come and take their jobs. Doesn't that sound anti-competitive? Um, but that is, um, that's been the rule. The problem is NWSL doesn't have a collective bargaining agreement, at least yet. It doesn't appear that their players are going to be pushing for an age rule. MLS players didn't push for it either. So no age rule. And moreover in, uh, in soccer, generally, there are a lot of players who are young who are successful. And so there's kind of a, uh, it, it's not like football where you'd say like, let's put my 12 year old out there and see what happens, you know? Uh, <laughs> no, thanks. Yeah. So, um, or American football. So uh, so she won at the, both the temporary restraining order and um, uh, preliminary injunction case uh, at stages. What that means is, is that the judge decided there was a substantial likelihood that she would prevail on the merits. Uh, the merits have not yet been decided. There hasn't been discovery in the case. There hasn't been a trial. Uh, so she might not win, but that's a judge saying that I think there's substantial likelihood there's real damage if we wait until trial. Remember, trials can take years to happen, and she's already losing years of development. And so she won the case. Um, now, I just tweeted about this uh, um, this week. NWSL filed a notice of appeal of that preliminary injunction ruling to the Ninth Circuit. Um, that just preserves their rights, so it doesn't mean necessarily they aren't going to settle this case or, or they aren't sort of buying time until they have a collective bargaining agreement where they could negotiate for it with their players and for another age rule. It just so that I just don't think there's like a lot there to justify the age rule. Um, you could have usually the standard for something like is this a it's a, a reasonable restraint? Right? It's not just the antitrust rules aren't just any restraint. It's a, there's a rule of reason and. Uh, if they were saying, we think that one, the, the, the team who signs a player has to, has to pay for their education, make sure that they have a guardian, like the, the rules that apply to um, on ho in Hollywood sets for young actors, you have to have a set uh, right. teacher, you have to, you know, there's a bunch of things they could do that were narrowly tailored to protect whatever rights they consider or whatever issues they consider are important. But just a blanket, you can't be here, it's tough for them to win that case. And I don't know why they're pursuing it. Um, you know, it, it's, it's, I mean, there's a couple things I can think of. One of which is uh, they really did believe that, um, that, that there was some risk to the players. Um, although then the question is, why is there less risk for the male players in, in the Major League Soccer academies? Right. Um, at, at this tournament I'm at from, with my son, there are um, probably a dozen or more 
MLS contracted players who are playing in the U17, U19 level, right? They're, they're still playing at the youth level. They've been signed. There are ways to do this. They figured it out. Um, it may require NWCL to spend some money to, you know, have like coaches for them and not just stick them with the, the senior players, but there are ways to do it. Uh, I don't know why they're, you know, I don't know if there's going to be a, a flood of women, you know, girls who they're going to sign. And, I, and frankly, I think it's probably great for marketing. <laughs> You know, there probably is a, you know, I can't understand why NWSL think this is, this is what they're going to, um, you know, state their claim on and, and go to wow. back for. Well, I tell, I tell you, all this, this legal, these legal ramifications and back and forth, when, when after the end of the day, it's all about putting the ball in the back of the net. It's uh, just gets very <laughs> confusing, doesn't it? Are we going to wrap up? One more question, but Grail, I think you want to ask. Yeah, uh, yeah, just quickly. Uh, yeah, getting back to the Super League really quickly. So the penalties have, have been imposed. They seemed rather toothless. Uh, the the uh, Premier League and the FA fined the big six clubs about 3.7 million pounds each. And then the um, UEFA fined the nine clubs, excluding the one, the three clubs you mentioned, about 1.4 million pounds each. Um, you know, there's the threat in the FA of, you know, other much more heavier fines, points. I'm just curious, in the overall scheme of things, it seems just like, such a ho-hum penalty for something that was a big deal. I'm, I'm curious your thoughts, or, and, and, and if that, they were restricted in some way by doing more. To, to some extent, I think this is a way for the FA to save face. Uh, I don't think they have a great legal claim for draconian penalties. If they had said, we're kicking you out or suspending you yeah. for some time, I think they would have gotten a competition law lawsuit right back at them we're They're back in another lawsuit you know, it would have been, and i don't know that i don't know that they would win that would be a that would be the example of why did the ncaa appeal the alston case so they could set a precedent that makes it much worse for them if right. fa had hit the the premier league teams hard then they get go to court now it's in england not in the eu and the english courts might have said you know what we actually, we got to revisit this question of whether the FA should be, you know, above review and all that. I mean, there might be, might've been a lot more precedent being set. So they, what they did was, uh, and they had one thing going for them in the English case, which is they had individual agreements with those teams about notice and about, you know, leaving. And so you can, you can make the argument that uh, um, this is more than, this is not really the antitrust part. This is like a contract claim, but um, but I think that was face saving and allows you know everybody to go home and be fine. In in the other cases, they didn't have that, right? So they've got they're in different countries. Um, plus, Spain had done you know they got they managed to secure an injunction in, in Spain, and so um, we'll have to see how that goes. But uh, this is one of those deals where the leagues um, want to you know saber rattling. They want to you know suggest like, hey, we punish them and whatever and you can't do this again if you do this again we're going to really serious mm -hmm. it's like you know what parents do when their kids do something and the kids know full well the parents are going to go that far like, what, what <laughs> double secret probation <laughs> you know and and uh so you know everybody agreed it was like this is a good way for us to both save face like we agree we're paying and so we're not like getting crosswise with our fans you know we we sort of capitulate but mm -hmm. nobody had to get mad enough to file a lawsuit and test whether they really have the power to do this. Well, it was almost like you're talking about like with the women's suit, they tried to change the, the findings by the 
you know, the court of public opinion. So it's uh, with the Super League, it happened right away. It's such a visceral reaction to what went down that uh, they tro- what? What are you talking about? We were just we we're just kidding. You know, all these big clubs that suddenly said, uh, you know, nothing going on. So I mean, two two things have to happen when you're filing in the court of public opinion. One, you have to have really quick and massive reaction, and they definitely had that in the Super League case. And two, you have to be willing to take something more than you're claiming. Like it can't be this. You can't overreach. You've got to be right. like, well, now we got the court of public opinion in our favor and then boom, swoop in and get what you can get and then get out mm-hmm. um, because the public's going to be, they're only willing to go so far. Um, and that's actually what I think is different. Um, there's a lot of public support, um, a lot of even uh, political support for the women. And, and I think deservedly, they, you know, they were mistreated for years and maybe there's a better case there, but it's just a tough case to win in court. So I just don't know where that's going to go. And so people have got stuck in for longer than anybody can save face, right? It's no longer right. face saving time. Right. So I don't know where they're going to go with this, but that's the benefit of the Super League is, is bang, settle quickly, get out. You know, everybody's back to normal. Nothing to see here. All right. Well, <laughs> Professor Bang, we, uh, we so enjoy you just kind of making um, sense of all these these court cases in this game. You know, at the end of the day, we just like I said, we just want to put the ball in the back of the net. But it gets so confusing, doesn't it? Because big money is involved. And, and uh, you know, in the case of the, of the Super League and things, these international law. So it plays right into your expertise. Who knew that this uh, whole time you were studying uh, your butt off, you were just preparing yourself for an appearance on Over the Ball. Uh, <laughs> we appreciate it. Professor Bank. Hey, best of luck with your son down there. Uh, he's a goalkeeper. So, are you a goalkeeper or were you a, a field? No, player? I was. I was a, a, a defender. All right. I, I was a defender in the days when defenders stayed home. Yeah, exactly right. We Don't go for the ways. Yeah, yeah, and you that had a goalkeeper sense. like your son yelling at you. Makes sense for a lawyer to be a defender. Yeah, exactly. very conservative, right? Keep, <laughs> keep the keep the facts in front of you. You know, that's all exactly. you do. All right, Professor Banks. Hey, Banks, thank you so much for joining us on Over the Ball. Happy to do it. Thanks. Hey, remember to tweet us at Over the Ball, like us on Facebook and Instagram, and write a review. In fact, make us one of your favorites. It makes a big difference. I love talking to that guy. Every time I talk to Professor Bank, I wish I was back in college, man. Well, who wouldn't want to be back in college? Based on that That'd conversation, be a great course. Flinny, I just say so many lawsuits, not enough time. Yeah, you know what? It says to uh, you young people out there listening to Over the Ball, go to law school. Don't be a professional player <laughs> oh like the rest of us. I'm going to so, sue uh, you guys. Yeah, I don't know what I'm going to sue you for, but what the heck? I've never been sued. I've been sued once, actually. I was on the BBC in England doing a show called So They Think It's Over, and they kept calling me Brian. <laughs> and they and they kept dropping they kept dropping the C word over and over, the C word over yeah. and over. And I'm like, okay. I'm looking at him like, wow, they're dropping the C word. And when he called me Brian like the fifth time, and I corrected him the fifth time, I did in sign language, I said, my name is Kevin. And oh my God, they freaked. They were like, wow. So it was definitely a cultural difference between the United States where you could do that. You couldn't do it today, but you could do it back then here. You could use the C word over there. No, but you could use the C word over there, but you, could, you couldn't use the C word here, but you could, yeah, exactly. you could do the sign language thing or pretend to do sign language. And so I got sued by uh, the hearing impaired of Britain or something. Uh, never heard about it. I, I, I Googled it and it came up. <laughs> well, it's, uh, it's also the difference, Flinny, in England. You know, when I was 12 years old, I'd watch TV and they'd have have sex scenes on B- on the BBC and it was right. like oh hum but they would never want to show violence on TV 
And it's the, Which is interesting. it's the inverse over here. Like we're prudish about sex, but we're happy to show people getting their heads blown off. Right. Jack Nicholson once said, he said, yeah. they'd rather show me a uh, stab a breast than caress one. And it's yes. kind of true. It's unfortunate. Yeah. So you, uh, Jack Nicholson was an actor. So um, <laughs> that's for our audience. Talented for you young guys. All right. Yeah. So what do we got, Sam? We got a uh, quiz before we go here. Make I just got, I, I got a really short quiz. I, I tried to really look into this. I, I want to find out who Americans are rooting for in the Euro. And I was trying to ah. look at, you know, the numbers game by game and then weighing the days differently. Cause obviously more people walk in the weekend. It got way too complicated. Okay. So I just have a very simple question. Uh, this is from the website world soccer talk and this was posted two days ago which so, by the one by the way this show won mls talk show of the year on world soccer talk so hey all right yes bringing it full circle yeah so uh, as of two days ago uh, have the average viewing numbers been higher here in the u.s for the copa america or the euro oh you know i, I always go that's a against, trick question yeah I copa go, america I'm, I'm gonna say copa Okay, you're right. It's Copa America, yeah. which is uh, uh, averaging 980,000 viewers a game. Uh, yeah. So far, Euro 2020 averaging 961,000. Oh, close, close. As you mentioned, yeah. However, um, the numbers for Fox, which is the English language channel Are bad. for the Copa, well, they haven't been released. Uh, so, yeah, uh, you're talking to Spanish speaking um, Americans. Yeah. So. But I think you could probably imagine 20,000 people are tuning in so that would get them over but sam that's good because combined you're looking at about two million people watching soccer yeah which might be the the same two million people because they watch it in the morning and then watch the copa at night but yeah Yeah, i i I bet there's kind of a separate audience would be my guess yeah but it's interesting because that's that's probably this is the only sport that that happens in really i think it's Uh, funny because i'm obviously following the euro it's all i really care about and talk about and then i go i I play pickup here in town with a bunch of latino guys and you know just all copa you know yeah yeah, all copa I just worried, you know, like Fox, if they get enough of a return, Grail, that's sort of in your sphere. If yeah. there's enough of a return for them, if they're, you know, they're splitting the numbers with Univision or, or whatever. Um, well, they do it to extend their reach. I mean, they, you know, they all have their Spanish ESPN Deportes and that yeah. kind of stuff. So it's all, it's just, it's just broadening the audience base. Yeah. Well, I feel like ESPN Deportes sort of ran ESPN soccer over there. I, I kind of felt that way anyway. Mm-hmm. I used to say that when I was over there, it was, you know, you had a separate, the women and the women's national team was in a separate building. The men's, uh, the Latino stuff was over somewhere else. The you know, mm-hmm. MLS was somewhere else. It was just, it was Two no segmented. cohesion. Yeah. And it was yeah. all run by the international group, not, not Americans. So right. that's why I'm always pissing and moaning, but anyway. <laughs> uh, all right, Sam. So that's it. That was a very, well, I would say, say the, yeah. I would so say the most popular uh, team to watch in the Euros would be the English team just because of the premier league and and uh, I'm going to say Italy. I, I got to tell you, I'm, I, I'm pulling for Sam's Italy. I don't normally do that, but they've, they've shown me, they've given me reason to pull for them. I'm yeah, but you're talking, you're, you're talking as a player watching good play. I'm just saying mm-hmm. the, yeah. the nationalities that they are most comfortable with and we're watching. I, I think I, I agree because everyone, not everyone, but most people watch the premier league in terms right. of the European league. So the names and the faces are all very familiar to them. And, you know, it's always so fun to watch. You watch the Premier League, but you're watching Man City with De Bruyne. You're watching Liverpool. You know, it's everybody's got a player that's in the Euros. And it's for American audiences. That's kind of a new thing. It's like, yes, these these, like those teams are actually all star teams. I bet if you you polled a lot of people who watch the Premier League and don't know that Kevin De Bruyne plays for Belgium. 
I think, yeah, they think he's they think he's redhead. He's an Irishman. Yeah. Um, I've never seen an Irishman play like that, though. Uh, so, uh, all right, guys. Uh, good stuff. Love talking to Professor Bank. Uh, all right. Our homework assignment this week is to watch this movie uh, with an open mind and see LFG, if actually, LFG. Uh, yeah. See if they actually, um, you know, give the facts or it's just a pull PR campaign. Because, look, the, the press on it has been horrible so far. I think it could uh, backfire. I, I, I hate to say it, but I think the fact that there is no balanced perspective from what we've read in the reviews that Sam showed us is not going to work in their best interest, frankly. And as I said in the opening, it seems like every person I talk to has the facts wrong, you know, yeah. about the, whether collective bargaining agreement, the different asks, the guaranteed contracts that the women have, the $10 million, the- And the, the politicians the aren't healthcare. helping. Politicians no, aren't helping because they're just jumping on board saying equal pay. Right, which we're all, all equal pay. <laughs> we're all for, and at the yeah. at the end of the day, everybody. If you do say, does the NBA should the NBA make what the WNBA makes, and people are like, what? So um, yeah, we're all for equal pay. So anyway, that's our assignment, guys. We'll watch it. So uh, right. thanks everybody for listening to Over the Ball. I'd like to thank our guest, Professor Stephen Bank, uh, professor of law at UCLA, for Grail Hallett, Sam Griswold. I'm Kevin Flynn, and we'll talk to you next time. <laughs>